Where do you turn when trials and times of suffering come into your life? Your answer might be different from two years ago, before the pandemic halted the world, before Russia invaded Ukraine. Many have struggled, right? But we're not the first. Coming up, we're going to go back to the time of Joshua. We'll look at how he encountered severe opposition, but hung on to joy. You've joined us for The Land and the Book. If you have never connected before, well, welcome and some introductions. Our host is a guy who's led more than 100 tours to Israel, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and on this first segment of the broadcast, we'd like to turn our attention toward news stories that are based in the Middle East. But before we do that, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year you can. Our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you in the lead-up to this year's Passover. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. The booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. So visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. All right, let's swing our focus toward current events in the Middle East. Story number one, with the world laser focused on events in Ukraine, the nuclear talks with Iran slipped out of the public eye for several weeks. What's the latest on the nuclear deal? Well, it looks like Iran has worn down the West to the point where a nuclear deal very favorable to Iran might be implemented. The last issues on the table are specifics on how far sanctions should be rolled back, on guarantees from the U.S. that it won't quit the pact again, and questions on undeclared sites in Iran where traces of uranium were discovered. Now, if an agreement can be reached, it will free up billions of dollars for Iran while allowing the sunset provisions of the original agreement to remain in place. Now, that means Iran will be allowed to use advanced centrifuges starting in 2025 and totally remove the cap on its stockpile of uranium beginning in 2030. And, by the way, they're already violating both of those provisions. Hmm. Uh, with the pressure on the West from Russia and China and events in the Ukraine, it appears likely the West will sign a poor treaty simply to remove it as a distraction and to keep the price of oil from going higher. Now, one thing these negotiations have done is to align all parts of the political spectrum in Israel. Politicians from both the right and the left have denounced the details of the agreement that have been leaked to the press. Israeli Prime Minister Bennett said the deal will bring about more violence in the region as it boosts Iran's ability to finance attacks against Israel and the Gulf states. And Israel's Foreign Minister Lapid said Israel would not be bound by a restored nuclear deal, saying they won't hesitate to act. Now, for all intents and purposes, this new agreement will likely accomplish exactly the opposite of what it's trying to do. It'll make the Middle East and the rest of the world a more dangerous place. Iran will be encouraged to push forward with its nuclear program while also being able to support state-sponsored terrorism. Hmm. And Israel will be faced with a very real possibility at some point of needing to anger the U.S., its closest ally, by launching an attack on its own to stop Iran's nuclear program. Charlie, is there anything, apart from relatively lower oil prices, that America gets out of this? I mean, what, what drives all these concessions on our part? Uh, what drives the concessions is our desire for the administration to be able to claim that it has achieved a victory diplomatically, that it's gotten Iran to go back to this agreement 
poor as it might be. And in fact, this agreement is actually poorer than the one that was originally signed. Well, in light of Iran's stated goal of destroying Israel, and they've made no secret about that, how seriously should the world take those warnings? Yeah, and this is really one of the real problems, John. I'm concerned that many secular politicians don't take Iran's threats seriously. You know, too many in government, and I'm talking worldwide here, make promises to get elected, which they never intend to keep. And they assume Iran's leadership operates the same way. Those with a secular mindset are simply blind to the significance of the religious underpinnings that have driven Iran for the past 43 years. Ayatollah Khomeini was a fervent Shiite fundamentalist, and his disciples are the ones now currently ruling Iran. They believe they're called by God to lead an Islamic revival that will usher in the Mahdi, the Islamic Messiah. And part of their eschatology, their view of the end times, includes a worldwide conflagration and the destruction of the Jews. They've actively worked for decades to spread their Shiite brand of fundamentalism. They've also worked to try to encircle and weaken Israel. Uh, The current Ayatollah predicted back in 2015 that Israel would cease to exist within 25 years. And a countdown clock's been set up in Iran showing the time remaining until 2040. Now, it's no accident Iran is the main supporter of Hezbollah and Hamas, the Houthis in Yemen, and Bashar Assad in Syria. Uh, The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps are the shock troops sent out to support Israel's enemies and to launch terrorist attacks against Israel and the United States. If Iran's allowed to obtain nuclear weapons, they'll use them in one of two ways. They'll either use them as a threat against any country opposing their plans, or they'll try to launch a surprise attack against Israel, hoping to wipe out a significant portion of the Jewish population living along the coast. Now, I don't believe God will allow that to happen. But I do believe a fundamentalist Islamic regime with nuclear weapons could be the most dangerous type of nuclear power imaginable because they see themselves as God's instruments for bringing about the very destruction they could then have the power to unleash. If you just joined us, that's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar. And I'm John Geiger. We're working our way through a list of current event stories based in the Middle East. Israel has again opened its doors to tourism As you get ready to head back there in just over a week, Charlie, what impact will recent changes and entry requirements have on your trip and on trips later this spring? Well, the impact on my upcoming trip isn't that significant because everyone had already signed up before Israel announced these new changes. But the impact on future trips, well, it could really be quite significant. Beginning this past Tuesday, Israel is now allowing in tourists regardless of their vaccination status. Since the arrival of the COVID vaccines, Israel has only allowed in tourists who are fully vaccinated. Anyone unwilling or unable to be vaccinated couldn't enter. Well, that's now changed. Israel has also eliminated the need for a so-called green pass for those wanting to visit museums and other public venues. Masks are still required in public spaces indoors, but they're not required outdoors. And that might even change in the next few weeks. Now, they're still leaving some precautions in place. All tourists must still take a PCR test prior to boarding their flight to Israel, and they also need to take another PCR test on arrival at the airport in Israel and then quarantine at their hotel until they receive the results. Thankfully, those results are usually available by the next morning. Tours get set up months in advance, so it might take some time until additional tours get underway, but hopefully Mm -hmm. those tours already scheduled will see an uptick in individuals who will now be eligible to go. One thing, John, that I've been reminded of over the past two years is that Only God knows what tomorrow holds. So my advice to anyone listening right now, if you're wanting to go to Israel, now might be your best opportunity. Who knows what's going to happen in the next year or two? 
any reduction in some of the paperwork that we had to file, Charlie, when we were there in November. There is. You know, uh, Kathy and I have our little files all together, and uh, she was just saying last night how many uh, less things we have to fill out now than we did before. You still have to fill out a few, uh, but it's getting better. That's great news. Well, congestive heart failure is a leading cause of mortality. And now, a company out of Israel is seeking to tackle the problem in a fresh, new way. Charlie, tell us about this latest innovation for treating congestive heart failure coming out of amazing Israel. Congestive heart failure, John, affects 6 million people in the United States. And the long-term prognosis for someone diagnosed isn't good. Less than half survive five years after diagnosis. Congestive heart failure doesn't mean the heart stopped working. It really occurs when blood returns to the heart faster than it can be pumped out, causing the heart to become congested. Eventually, blood and other fluids back up inside the lungs, abdomen, liver, and lower body. Now, the only treatment, at least until now, has been pharmaceuticals like ACE inhibitors, diuretics, and vasodilators. And that's where this latest innovation from Restore Medical in Israel comes in. They've developed an implant they're calling Contraband, C-O-N-T-R-A-B-A-N-D. The implant is delivered to the heart via catheter. It changes the pressure in the right ventricle, enabling it to support the failing left ventricle. The device isn't a cure for congestive heart failure, but instead it'll be an additional treatment option. The company started clinical trials and will begin initial conversations with the FDA later this year. They hope to have it available to help patients here in the United States by 2026. Someday soon, a simple implant to treat congestive heart failure might be as common as stents are right now being used to open blocked arteries. And when that day arrives... We can thank the doctors and scientists at Restore Medical in Amazing Israel for contraband. Charlie, a lot of people have yet to discover and take advantage of our podcast. It's a big deal because, in your words, because they can now listen to the land in the book anyplace, anytime, at their convenience. Uh, It's available when they want to listen, not when we're necessarily broadcast on their local station. Okay, we uh, greeted folks uh, at the front end of the broadcast, some of whom are new to the program. We've got four segments here. We just completed our look at current events. Coming up, this conversation about the joy of Joshua. We're going back to his day. Our third segment, question and answers with you, Charlie. And then you're coming back for a fourth segment. It's a devotional. Where are we headed today and what can we expect? Ah, We're in my five favorite places in Israel. And today we're going to place number four, the Ela Valley. Uh, where David fought Goliath. And John, it is one of my favorite places. It is, and you do a beautiful job of helping us relive that scene in so many creative ways. We're looking forward to that and so much more all ahead on The Land and the Book. Up next, it's The Joy of Joshua. Keep it right here. You know, it's easy to take the life of Joshua and cover it with a super sweet frosting of happy stories and exciting conquest, and certainly there was some of that. But the Joshua of Scripture was a guy who had his share of ups and downs. And some of those down moments were really down, which means he has something to teach us today in an age of extreme unrest, political warfare, pandemics, depression, and personal defeat. You're about to meet Joshua as you've never met him next. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, inviting you to pause with me now for a moment as we consider a great idea for showing the love of Jesus to a Jewish friend or neighbor. What do most Jewish people think about Jesus? 
That's a conversation we're about to have now with Greg Sabat with Rock of Israel. What's the answer, Greg? Well, a lot of things. Jewish people are basically like Jesus is not for us. But when I grew up, I thought Mr. and Mrs. Christ, Joseph and Mary, had a son named Jesus Christ. I thought that was his last name. In fact, John, when I went to my friend's house and they were all Italian Catholics, I felt that Jesus must have looked like Al Pacino in Serpico because that's <laughs> all the things that they had. But a lot of Jewish people say he's a prophet, and you can find many examples in the New Testament where Jesus says things about himself because if somebody's a prophet, they're always right, and you would be stoned to death in the Old Testament. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for us all. Some Jewish people think he's a great teacher. Well, did you hear what he taught? John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in him will never die. That's Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel here on The Land and the Book. Elizabeth Woodson is a Bible teacher and author who is passionate about equipping believers to understand the rich theological truths of Scripture. She loves helping people internalize their faith and connect it practically to everyday life. She's a contributing author for World on Fire, walking in the wisdom of Christ when everyone's fighting about everything. Elizabeth is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary with a master's degree in Christian education, and we're honored that she has joined us today on The Land and the Book. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, let me ask you, at what point in your own study of the life of Joshua did you realize, hey, here is a message that people need to hear more about? You know, I think as I was reading through the first chapter of Joshua, because the book is such a pivotal moment in the life of Israel and when they are taking a hold of the promise that God has given them, but you just see this moment at the very beginning where you realize that when Joshua is stepping into the promised land, Moses is not going with him. Mm. And for him to have been with Moses for so long, and at this pivotal moment, he experiences something that's really hard and really heavy. And just what God tells him in these first few verses of chapter one to me just stood out, such a powerful message in a moment that probably was really hard for him. Yeah. Well, I, I guess right away I start relating to him. You said life is hard and heavy. A lot of people feel that way right now. Where do we see an example of self-examination in the life of Joshua? Any moments come to mind? Yeah, you know, I think as God is talking to him, and it's this really wonderful conversation in those first few nine verses, that he is going over the truth that Joshua would have heard before. And so you have previously in Deuteronomy and just what Moses blessing on Joshua, that as Joshua is remembering the truth he's heard before, remembering the blessing that's been spoken over his life and the life of Israel, that you kind of have this going back in mm. the first few nine verses. And to me, that's that space of self-examination. You know, let me go back to truth that I've heard before about what yes. it means for me to be a child of God. And then how do I walk forward in that? And so I think that's what we see in those first few verses. How to find joy when the life you have is not the life you hope for. That's our focus today on The Land and the Book with Elizabeth Woodson, who's written a book by that same title. And you talk about these six keys for having a, a renewed perspective to embrace the life God has given us, self-examination being the first, lament being the second. Where do we see an example of 
of lament in, in the life of Joshua. Right. So in the first verse or second verse, you hear God say to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. Now arise and go over the Jordan. And so you can read that. And that feels a little jarring. You're like Moses died. How does he have time to process this? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy 34, you will see that the whole nation had this season of lament and mourning for Moses. And to me, that was just really powerful because it gives us the space to say when hard things happen, we can acknowledge them. We don't have to internalize it or stuff it down. That in Scripture, we see God giving his people this practice or this space to be able to acknowledge the loss that they're experiencing and bring it to him. So what about somebody listening right now who's going through a season of lament and they can't seem to get out? What's your counsel to them? My counsel to them is lament contains so much hope. And so that as we read through the Psalms, so even Psalm 13, and you have David crying out to the Lord. I always like to say, I don't know if he wrote the complete Psalm all at the same time, because at the beginning, he's, he's angry and he's frustrated and he's sad, but at the end, he remembers the truth about who God is. And so I think in a place of lament, a place to bring all of our emotions to the Lord, it's important for us to remember the person we're actually talking to, mm. and to remember his sovereignty, and to remember that he's eternal, which means that time for him is always perfect. So we don't understand his timing, but his timing is perfect. We understand he's faithful. Like He makes his promises, and he keeps them. And so it's not only that we stay in this place of lament, but we remember, I'm crying out to the Lord, and with the Lord, there's always hope. And so how can I live in light of who God is and who he's told me he is? What I'm hearing here is a definite switch of focus. I mean, we're not denying the source of sadness. We're not denying the loss, that season of lament. But we are also remembering, as you've said, Elizabeth, who it is that's running the show. Exactly. Well, in order to embrace your life, you suggest the idea of remembrance is also key. What does Joshua offer us by way of remembrance? Right. So um, in verse 8 in chapter 1, God tells Joshua, really just as for him and for the entire nation of Israel, man, your ability to walk forward into this new season hinges on you remembering the book of the law. And so the book of the law would be those first five books of the Old Testament. And so God is telling Joshua, um, in order for you to move forward, you need to live in light of the truth that I've told you about who I am and who you are. And really the mission that we see that Joshua is walking forward in of the promises that were made to Abraham um, and the promises that were made to Israel through Moses. And so we just see that just being our ability to remember Scripture is such an important tool that we have in order to move forward after this place of lament as we're walking through difficult seasons. Elizabeth Woodson is a Bible teacher and author who is passionate. I think you've picked that up. Very passionate about equipping believers to understand the truths of Scripture. Her book is Find Joy When the Life You Have is Not the Life You Hope For. We, uh, we often associate Moses with faith, and surely he was a man of great faith, no question about it. But Joshua had to have not just great faith, but extraordinary faith to rally the Israelites. I'm thinking of to rally those Israelites to march around Jericho. And then there was that horrible loss in the battle of Ai, or is it I, depending on your pronunciation, <laughs> after which he had to summon faith in God on and on and on. We see in his life extraordinary faith. What comes to your mind when you look at Joshua? What comes to my mind is I remember uh, what God repeats to him several times, and this is the idea of being strong and courageous. 
you talked about it, like it's Jericho, the battle at Ai, it's all the kings that Joshua and Israel would fight against to take a hold of the land of Canaan. And they fought a lot in the book of Joshua. It's a book of conquest. And this idea of being strong and courageous really is that you would have sheer determination and courage mm. to walk forward into what he has for him. And when I read that, you know, and knowing what Joshua goes through and what he leads the people to do is this idea that it's not necessarily that they're walking into the land of Canaan won't be hard. It will. Mm -hmm. But what God promises is that he will be with them in it. And because of his presence, that they can move forward with just sheer determination. They're going to push through and they're also going to be courageous um, and push past fear to do what God has called them to do, really fulfilling the promise that was made to Abraham. Do you think that it got a little bit easier for Joshua as time went on, as he saw God winning battles, as he saw his own faith in the Almighty rewarded? Did having that faith, the act of having faith, become just a bit easier, do you think? I do. I do. You know, after you see God bring success to your people, after they are fighting in battle, you realize that God is with me. And each step of faith confirms the truth that God has told him all the way back at the beginning before he's crossed over the Jordan. And so I definitely think that it got easier for Joshua. And just a testament to the persistence of his faith, you know, we see further down the line in Israel's story that they didn't always stay close to the Lord, yeah. but Joshua did. Mm -hmm. And he really sees blessing in his life because of that. In the book, you tell us that joy is a vital component of embracing our lives. What can Joshua teach us along these lines? You know, I think Joshua shows us that a life centered on the Lord is a life in which we experience the fullness of life. And so you get to the very end of Joshua, and it's in his last days, and he's given one of his final messages to the nation of Israel. And he tells them, stick close to the Lord. Like, all that you've seen us be able to accomplish just because we were close to the Lord. He's like, as for me and my house, yeah, I'm going to stay close to the Lord. And so... For Joshua, I think this idea of joy, um, not just merely an emotion, but just this fullness of existence, the abundant life that we have through Christ. And again, we see Joshua says, everything I have has come from the Lord. And if you want to experience joy, then you need to stick close to the Lord, too. What about those who say, Elizabeth, this all sounds nice, but honestly, I really would rather be living someone else's life right now, not the life that God seems to have given me. I'm guessing Joshua might have thought that a time or two. How would you counsel the listener who feels that way? Right. I appreciate Scripture because I believe Scripture gives us the ability to be honest about how we feel. And so honest about, and this isn't what I want. This isn't what I signed up for. This is yeah. really hard. This has lasted too long. But what we see about the life of Joshua is that Joshua was part of a story that was bigger than his pain. That he ultimately was a part of a story where God was working through his plan of redemption for the entire world. And like Joshua, we are part of that story, too, that God has given us as his children the opportunity to step in and to bring the truth of redemption to the world, to care about our neighbors, to show the light, his light and his love around us. And that's a really important mission that we've been called into. And so as I'm talking to people, I'm like, we've got to bring our eyes up out of our situation and recognize, now what has God called me to? Mm. He's got a mission for me in the same way that he had a mission for Joshua. She loves helping people internalize their faith, connect it practically to everyday life. Our conversation is with Elizabeth Woodson, who's written Find Joy When the Life You Have is Not the Life You Hope For. You know, it seems to me that at a point, we are guilty of idol worship if we insist on a life defined by our own dreams and desires, as opposed to what God apparently has for us. What do you think? Yeah, that we live in a world, I tell my students, when I'm teaching at church, 
that discipleship is not neutral. We are being formed by the world we live in. And so we can be formed by scripture. We can be formed by the world. And the world tells us to worship other idols. Our idols might not be of stone and wood like we see in scripture, but they are success or that we have to have all the things in the world or that we follow just simply our own way. And that scripture shows us, the life of Joshua shows us that when we have other options for other pathways we can take, the pathway of the Lord is always the right way. And so you have the battle of AI Mm -hmm. and there was just sin in the camp and Joshua made the decision to deal with the sin. And that's what we got to do in our lives, that idolatry leads us to a place of sin, but we deal with it and we come back to the Lord and we see his covering and promises made true in our life. Talk directly to the divorced mom, the guy whose career has tanked, or anybody else who feels like the very possibility of joy is really kind of beyond them right now. One final thought. That there is always hope. Joy is always possible. That you are a part of a story that is bigger than your pain, and God has something for you. And even in the moments where it feels hopeless and that he's not around, that he is. And that we would remember that he's sovereign, which means he's fully in control, and he is working it out in our lives right now. And that we would trust and believe that he's going to bring us something good, even in a season of difficulty. Hmm. I love this conversation. I love your attitude, Elizabeth, and the bright spirit that you bring to this whole story. And if you would like to get to know her better, uh, she's got a website that we've got a link to at our website, thelandandthebook.org, a link there to her book as well. Appreciate very much your uh, conversation today and letting us into the life of Joshua with a fresh new light today, Elizabeth. Yes, thank you. It's been a joy. Coming up on The Land and the Book, it's a fresh set of Bible questions. I love what listeners are thinking about as they go through the Bible. Maybe yours is one of the questions we answer coming up next. Welcome back to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger asking, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year you can. Yeah, our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you in the lead up to this year's Passover. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus our Messiah and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. So visit lifeandmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. All right, let's get to our questions for this segment on the land and the book, starting with Isabel, who has two. She first says, uh, greetings from Billings, Montana, where I listen to the land and the book on KBLW every week and usually listen again on the podcast. All right, here's her first question. She takes us to Proverbs 9, verse 1. says, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. What are the seven pillars? Yeah, and before I answer that part, I need to just back up slightly and talk about that section of Proverbs. In the first nine chapters, Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman. At the end of chapter 8, he connects wisdom to creation itself, and he says wisdom was there from the beginning, before the world began, and was there when God set the heavens in place. Uh, Wisdom then says the person who comes daily to her doorway is going to be blessed. 
Uh, that theme continues in chapter 9. And in the first few verses, Solomon suggests wisdom's house isn't too difficult to discover. He says it's a large mansion or a temple held up with seven pillars filled with tables of the finest fare. He says it's at the highest point in the city, suggesting it's not something hidden. Now, sadly, Solomon also pictures folly, which is the opposite of wisdom, also as a woman. And beginning in verse 13 of that chapter, he says, she sits at the door of her house at the highest point of the city and invites the naive to her banquet, offering stolen water and food eaten in secret, which are the pleasures of disobedience and sexual immorality. Now with these two women, wisdom and folly, encouraging the passerby to come in, comes back to the original question. So what are the seven pillars in the house of wisdom? I believe the seven-pillared house is really intended to present a place of stability and grandeur, a place that wisdom herself invites us to enter. But beyond that, I really do hesitate to find anything more symbolic in the text, you know, concerning the number seven or the pillars. Isabel's second question takes us to Psalm 119. Would you please uh, describe the difference between statutes, precepts, and decrees? Yeah, I don't see any significant difference between those words. They're all synonyms referring to reading, studying, meditating on, and applying the Word of God. In fact, I think the writer uses a whole bunch of synonyms to stress the priority and importance of God's Word in our life. You know, he actually uses seven key words in that psalm. He calls uh, the Bible the Word, the Law, the Statutes, Precepts, Commands, Ordinances, and Decrees. Now, each of those focuses on the promises God has made to us and the requirements God's laid out for us. I think a good way to discern the meaning of each word is to see what the writer says about it in the context. For example, in verses 98 to 99, he says, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. In essence, he's saying that studying, meditating on, and obeying God's word, the commands and the statutes, gives a person wisdom and insight to become more skillful than the wisest teachers and to be able to successfully handle any opposition they might face in life. The psalmist is telling us all the ways we benefit from studying and meditating on and following God's word. And by using all these different synonyms, I think he's stressing the centrality of God's word in our life. You're listening to The Land and the Book. So glad to have you part of the mix today. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. It's always fun to find out what is puzzling you as you read through Scripture. Like this question from Marilyn, why do angels report to God? Do they have tasks that they need to report about? You know, how did that task go? She says, I'm thinking of passages like Job 1, verse 6. Your thoughts, Charlie? Yeah, and I'm going to uh, go across the Bible on this one. Uh, The word angel actually in Greek means messenger. Uh, And so the term does suggest angels have specific assigned tasks You know, the angels that were sent to Daniel in the Old Testament or to Mary and Joseph and the wise men in the book of Luke suggest they are tasked by God with delivering specific messages from him. Uh, We're also told there's different categories of angels. Ezekiel mentioned cherubim who guard the holiness of God. Isaiah 6 mentions seraphim, which could be another class or it could be simply a further description of the cherubim as burning ones, picturing their fiery appearance. Uh, Michael's called an archangel in Jude 9 and That suggests there's a hierarchy in angelic ranks. In fact, in Revelation 12, Michael's the one who leads the good angels of heaven in a still future battle with Satan and the angels who chose to follow him. Now, you mentioned Job 1, and of course, Job 1 and 2 does suggest God holds angels accountable for certain tasks and calls them to account at certain times. Now, unfortunately, we're not told all the things God expects these angelic hosts to accomplish. 
When he was tempting Jesus, Satan said angels could come to his aid if Jesus would just call on them. You know, later, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he said God could put at his disposal 12 legions of angels to protect him, uh, should he so desire. And by the way, a legion was 6,000 men. Wow. Jesus was saying there were 72,000 angels available just for his personal protection at that very moment. You know, the book of Revelation tells us angels praise God. Hebrews tells us they're ministering spirits that were sent by God to help followers. In fact, Matthew 18, Jesus talks about uh, new believers and says, they're angels in heaven, always see the face of my father. In fact, it's from that passage, we get the idea of people having a guardian angel who watches over us. Now, while all those aspects are fascinating, here's the key point. There are a few things we do know about angels, but there are far more things about angels we don't know. Someday we're going to have insight into that dimension of God's creation, but for right now, we're only given these hints. But there are enough to know they're created by God for a purpose, and some aspects of their work do bring them into contact with us, but that activity is almost always hidden from us, which is why the writer of Hebrews says we need to remember to show kindness and hospitality to strangers, because we might just someday discover we were unknowingly entertaining angels. Hmm. Mind-blowing. Here's a question from Joan. Why do some pastors ask the congregation for an amen during the sermon? Maybe they think it means agreement with what they just said. But since I learned it means so be it, I don't get it. Your thoughts? Yeah, actually, the term amen comes from a Hebrew word that at its very root has the idea of truth. Uh, The verb form means to confirm or support or have the idea of affirming that what was said or prayed is reliable, it's trustworthy, it's truthful, it's faithful. Uh, When it's used in the Bible, it seems to affirm that validity of what was just said. Now, in places like Deuteronomy 27, the people affirm the validity of the curses being pronounced by saying, amen, that's true. In Nehemiah chapter 5, the people say it to affirm the statements that were made by Nehemiah. Now, in Romans 1 and 9 and 11, Paul uses it in the sense of either so be it or may it always be so. So it has a, a range of meaning. Now, having said all that, though, I don't have a problem with a pastor asking for an amen as long as he isn't, as we would have said where I grew up, fishing for a compliment. But if he's asking the people to affirm the validity of what he's just said, or wanting them to make a solemn affirmation of the truth behind it, then asking for an amen is okay. But I do know it can seem a bit jarring or disruptive to those of us who come from a slightly different experience in terms of our church worship. Hmm. Carrie says, I've never been able to figure out, will we go right up to heaven when we die? Luke 23, 43, for example. Or do we stay buried or cremated until the Lord will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ shall rise first? Also, will we recognize people who have gone on before us? I really want to be with my husband again. I miss him every day since he died nine years ago. Yeah, when we die, we do know our soul and spirit go to be with the Lord. Well, that's why Jesus could say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, when you think about it, Jesus's body, as well as the body of the thief, went to the grave but their souls and spirits went to paradise to be in the presence of the Father. That's why also, I think in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, in terms of how the body and the soul and spirit reunite, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul describes a time in the future when the soul and spirit of those who died will be reunited in their new resurrection bodies at the time that we call the rapture. Their bodies will be raised from the grave, transformed, reunited with the soul and spirit. And at the same time, those of us still alive here on earth will be caught up in the air as our bodies are instantaneously transformed as well. Then we all get to go be with the Lord. Now, apparently, we will recognize those who've gone on before us. 
Uh, so I think you will recognize your husband. When, when Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you know, in Luke 16, the rich man was able to recognize Lazarus, even though both had died. In fact, their bodies were still in the grave. Now, mm. Jesus was telling a parable, but I don't believe Jesus would teach something that was untrue. Uh, so that leads me to believe that uh, we will see and recognize our loved ones in heaven. However, I suspect when you get there, you'll ultimately be focused on Jesus. It's almost impossible, I think, for us to imagine what it's going to be like when we see him face to face and experience being in his presence. Boy, that's a great way to land today's Q&A segment. It's interesting, Charlie, as we go through these questions, uh, you're reading more and more people who catch the program as a podcast. There's a reason for that. It's convenient. It's personal. It's on your schedule, on demand, whenever you're ready. Check out the podcast. You'll find it at our website, thelandandthebook.org. I'm looking forward to Charlie's devotional. It's next. He takes a passage of Scripture, a place in Scripture, and welds them together next. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. This next segment is Charlie's devotional, and I love the series that we're in. It's Charlie's five favorite places in Israel. The reason it's a big deal is because when you've been to a place one or two or three times, yeah, you have some sense of what it's all about. But when you've been there more than 80 times, I think that makes you something of an authority on the region. And that's why we're looking forward, Charlie, to your perspective coming up here on The Land and the Book. First, though, a testimony from someone who traveled with us on our Seven Churches of Revelation tour to the land of Turkey. Hi, my name's Bob from Solon, Ohio. And on my uh, fourth day in Turkey in the stadium Aphrodisius, I experienced a very emotional moment. We began to recall the events that took place there basically track and field events. I was a track coach for 33 years and participated in running events in high school and later on in life during my 20s and 30s. I thought about all those marathons I ran, the 10Ks and the 5Ks, and was just running to receive a medal, a prize. But began to contrast those flawed humans across the finish line of life in Hebrews 11:12 that I heard that day, how will I finish this race of endurance? I thought about Dr. Charlie Dyer said in that theater, Jesus is in the royal box and we're running the race of life with the heavenly angels cheering us on. So for the first time on this biblical tour, this is what it's all about. It's running the race of faith, persevering until Jesus calls us home. Great perspective. And it's always fun not to just hear from our listeners, but to travel with them as well. Charlie, we're in this series you've called Your Five Favorite Places in Israel. Remind us again, how did this come about? Well, on our Land in the Book Live events, we would often have my five favorite places, and I was able to show them slides. I thought, well, it'd be nice to take our our radio listeners there. Now, uh, we don't have the slides to show them, at least except for our Facebook page, uh, but uh, hopefully they can visualize these places because they really are dramatic. Okay, last week we visited Mount Arbel and saw its significance in Scripture. Where are you taking us today? Uh, this week, we're heading to the Ela Valley. It's number four on my list. Now, as the bus pulls to the side of the road, hop off and follow me uh, behind the guardrail. Now, I'm going to try and stomp down the weeds and the brush, but be prepared for a short off-road hike. And don't look down as you're crossing the cement culvert. Now, I think I can safely say this is almost certainly the most unusual spot you'll stop on our trip to Israel. Not scenic, mind you, but definitely different. 
actually junky might be a better word, but it's still one of my five favorite places because plus or minus a few hundred yards, you're now standing at the spot where one of the most amazing battles in Bible history took place. But to help you appreciate the site, let me set the stage. First, look back at the bus. You see that hill right behind it, just on the other side of the road? That's Soko. Now continue to look down the valley. You see that partially bald mountain out in the distance? It's about three miles away, and it's the site of ancient Azekah. Now, just on the other side of that hill is the Philistine Plain and the city of Gath. Goliath's hometown is just 10 miles from where we're now standing. Now, look here behind me. You see this ditch? It's the location of the brook that once ran through this narrow valley. The stream's dried up right now, but you can see that water once ran through here. The road that came up this valley used to cross the stream right where we're standing. It then curved past the small hill behind me before climbing the ridge up into the hill country. If you followed that road, you would eventually arrive at Bethlehem, about 15 miles away. All these details are important. That's why the writer of 1 Samuel 17 began by describing the preparations for a major battle between Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines were pushing their way into the foothills of Israel. If they weren't stopped, the heartland of the country would be threatened. The writer describes the advance this way. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. Soko, that's right behind you, just three or four hundred yards away. That's the front lines of the Philistine army. From there, all the way back to Azekah, out there in the distance, picture the far side of the valley carpeted with Philistine tents. Ephesdamim means boundary of blood and suggests that this area had seen its share of fighting in the struggle between these two nations. The next verse gives Israel's response to the Philistine aggression. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. If the Philistines are on Sokol right behind you, then the Israelites were on the hill just behind me and we're standing in the valley between them. Israel has its back to the wall. If the Philistines break through here, Bethlehem and the other towns in the hill country are in danger. We know what happens next. Goliath comes out to challenge Israel to a duel among champions. The tallest warrior from the army of the Philistines challenges Israel to send out its best warrior to fight. Every soldier in Israel's army turned to look at King Saul, who stood a head taller than everyone else. But when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Who could stand against Goliath? The answer arrives with a young shepherd boy from Bethlehem. Sent by his father to check on his brothers, David reaches Israel's camp just in time to hear Goliath's challenge. But David wasn't impressed. What will be done to the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? In desperation, Saul selects this young shepherd to battle Goliath. Saul offers his own royal armor, but David politely refuses. 
he's much more comfortable choosing the weapons he's skillfully practiced while watching over his father's sheep. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag which he had, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. David must have crossed the brook just about where we're now standing. As he approached Goliath, the giant warrior was incredulous. He looked down on David with contempt and sneered, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He cursed David and threatened to tear him to pieces and feed him to the buzzards. But listen carefully to David's response. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David wasn't naive. He saw Goliath's physical height and his weapons. But David viewed Goliath not from a human perspective, but from God's perspective. Goliath was bigger than David, but he was no match for the ultimate commander-in-chief of Israel's army. David knew the God he served, and he was confident in God's ability to deliver. This wasn't a contest between David and Goliath. It was a contest between God and Goliath. That's why David knew he was on the winning side. I love the Ala Valley because it's one of those spots where I can stand and say, this is the place where the battle happened. It's one of my five favorite places, not because of its beauty, but because of its authenticity and its significance. As we get ready to walk back to the bus, let me ask you one last question. What giants are you facing today? What is it that has you quaking in your boots, dreading the confrontation? Whatever it is, remind yourself of this. Your giants might be bigger, stronger, and more powerful than you, but they're no match for the God you serve. Take your last look around at the Ala Valley and remember this. The battle is the Lord's, and He will deliver. Boy, what a powerful reminder. Thank you, Charlie, and what great pictures there. You can just see that uh, somewhat interesting walk that we take as folks join us. <laughs> when we get there, people are saying, what is this guy? He's nuts. <laughs> and they always come back with a rock or two from that stream. Oh, they do. Yeah. Well, our time is up, but we want to say thanks to Dan Anderson, our co-producer, Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Geiger. Do come back next week for another edition of Moody Radio's The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.